Welcome to Extra AF, where me, your historian, and me, your librarian. Yeah, dive into some news articles about history and libraries, and then read off your stories. Yes, and we have stories this month, and I'm so excited. I am so pumped. We have stuff that's not just our hometowns. (laughs) Yes. But we still need more stories, so send them in to historicalafpod at gmail.com, and we'll read yours next month. Yes, and we will definitely give out the email again at the end of this episode, so if you are interested and forget to come back and listen to the email address, we'll say it again. Yeah, so really exciting. We really are looking for, like, you know, hometown legends, history of your hometown, family history. If you've been to a cool historical place and you just want us to talk about your experience, that's cool, too. Yes, I'm going to tell you a couple of weird family stories just as an aside. They're not super long, so... I'm just going to throw them in with one of the other stories that I'm going to talk about and y'all can judge my family and that's totally cool. (laughs) Yeah, one of them is from my mom. My mom's so cute the other day. She's like, if you keep talking about me, I'm going to be famous. I'm like, hell yeah, mom, you're going to be famous. So She is definitely famous. She is just precious. Love her. Uh, Needs to be protected at all costs. Just the treasure. Real talk. Yeah, so do you want to go first this time? with the? Uh, I do. Okay. So I actually got a news article this time instead of just rabbling about librarians, which first, to all the public librarians out there listening, happy summer reading and may the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they're never in your favor. <laughs> they're never in your favor. I stopped by our local library yesterday for like 10 minutes and I was like, well, I'm getting out of here. It was... <laughs> And there wasn't even, like, a big program going on. I missed the animal program the day before. So, anyway. So, I found this article on Common Dreams. And this is from the last couple of days. It was published on the 24th. And the title is, Citing CIA's Dark History, Librarians Protest Agencies Recruiting at Their Conference. So a little backstory. So ALA conference is going on right now. It's the American Library Association. It's a big to do. It's a yearly thing. They have authors come and talk and sign books and there's craft lectures and all kinds of stuff. And it's amazing. And I desperately want to go. And it was in Washington, D.C. this week. And I think it just ended today or yesterday. So the tagline for this article is everything they stand for is a violation of the values of librarianship. So we protested. And there is this wonderful picture of someone wearing a hood over their head with a sign that says no CIA recruitment at ALA. And they were standing in front of the the CIA's exhibitor booth. Let me say, librarians, when we get passionate about something, I don't know if y'all figured this out yet. If we get passionate about something, (laughs) we ride that shit into the sunset. Like we are very opinionated about our shit and very passionate. So here's the actual article. I'll shut up now. A group of librarians demanded the American Library Association abide by its values on Friday as they staged a protest of the CIA's presence and recruitment at the Professional Organization's annual conference. At the convention, which is taking place June 20th through the 25th in Washington, D.C., the CIA is among the hundreds of exhibitors. Being an exhibitor at one of its gatherings, the American Library Association says, provides the best and most comprehensive opportunity to reach decision makers in the library field. The protesters say the CIA's track record provides ample evidence it should not be provided that opportunity. 
The CIA is recruiting at hashtag ALAAC19, said organizer and Library Freedom Project founder Allison Macrina on Twitter. Everything they stand for is a violation of the values of librarianship, so we protested. The protesters laid out their motivation in a statement they handed out at the action. Because, look, librarians also bring their receipts, and they know how to catalog that shit. Yes. So they handed out statements. According to the Library Journal, the statement said, in part, the CIA has participated for decades in the violent overthrow of governments while propping up dictators all over the world. The CIA believes in absolute secrecy for itself, but total surveillance for all others. The CIA makes use of ultra-secretive black sites to conduct torture and extrajudicial detention. We need not list their entire history to show that library workers should not be associated with them, that the CIA's actions are incompatible with the values of librarianship. In an area where democracy is in jeopardy, where the government and its agencies are under the control of a dangerous white supremacist regime, the statement added, Library workers must take a stand against undemocratic forces, particularly those as powerful as the CIA. Damn. Wow. Yeah, like they put it all out there. So that language builds on and mirrors a call from an open letter released last year. Authored by Macrina and Dustin Fife and entitled No Legitimization Through Association, the CIA Should Not Be Exhibiting at ALA. The letter was published right after the ALA's 2018 annual conference when the CIA was also an exhibitor. We refuse to lend credence to the CIA through association, and we ask our fellow library workers to join us, it said. We should not allow them to space them space to recruit library workers to become intelligence analysts, which was the focus of their booth. Library workers are powerful, the statement added. We have a strong reputation in our local communities and across the world as being steadfast stewards of democracy intellectual freedom, equity, and social justice. We attempt to honor these values through our collections, programs, and services, and we recognize that our libraries need continuous examination in a systemically unjust society. Those values should extend to all that we do. A more democratic world is possible, and we believe that library workers can be at the forefront of this change. At this year's event, during a Saturday membership meeting, a resolution calling for a ban on CIA recruitment at all ALA conferences and meetings failed over objections that the CIA's free speech would be violated. Macrina says that's a facile argument, and the conference, Macrina told Common Dreams, is a ticketed private event. Or space, I'm sorry. We abide by a code of conduct there. It is absolutely reasonable for us to decide who gets to be in such a space. If the KKK wanted to exhibit, I believe we'd reject them. This is not a First Amendment issue. More library workers will continue to speak out against injustice on Monday evening outside the White House, this time with their ire directed at the Trump administration's immigration policies. With so many librarians in our nation's capital during a time of acute crisis in which crimes against humanity are being committed by our government, we feel it is a moral imperative to speak out while we are here. In Washington, D.C., the call to action from librarians for immigrant rights says, Libraries are founded upon the values of free and open access to information and to public spaces where people can safely exist, free from harassment or discrimination. We therefore strongly condemn the immigration policy of President Donald Trump that has persecuted immigrants. Those detention facilities, they say, are in direct conflict with our values and missions as librarians. Oh, wow. So when I first started in working in libraries, it was preached to me that we must remain neutral. Here's the problem. Libraries are not neutral spaces. No, they're not. 
they're not. And as I've gone on, I've even talked about it with some of my MLS professors. <sighs> Libraries have a duty to like stand up for what's right and, you know, informational freedom and being safe for everyone. So, yeah, no, I, that, I'm very proud of this article because it's, it's attacking exactly what is so prevalent in the news right now. And I'm really glad that they're like, hey, we don't want you at this conference. And it's not a freedom of speech thing. It's like a safety thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that is my news article for the library. And it just, it's fascinating to me. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was ISIS hacked into ALA's oh, uh, yes. information. And I remember getting a letter because I was a member of ALA at that time being like, your private information might have been hacked by ISIS. And I kept on thinking like, why would ISIS hack libraries? And then I was like, mm, yeah, we are pretty, we are being recruited by the CIA and super. Yes. But- yeah, like I've seen lots of instances where these places that there have been shooting of unarmed African-American people, the libraries in those communities have opened the doors and let people in and, you know, assured that it was a safe space, even if schools were closed and all of that. So libraries are really important for being safe for everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But yeah. yes. I, I mean, I think a lot of people say it like librarians wear a lot of hats and social workers, one of them, like you yes. need to be an advocate for people that need you and give them the sources they need to, you know, get what they need to get done, done. Yeah. And like, I mean, as librarians, we have to stay like open and accepting of people and like our public. And part of that is because of the social work aspect. And I mean, I've even, I've had a, patron at one of my libraries that was attacked by the guy that she was dating and I went with her to the hospital and the uh, police station and the court and all of that because librarians are so open for helping people that we form those bonds so I I just love it but yes yeah all right well for my article we are recording on the 26th of June right now and this is our July episode But this week is a really important week because this week marks the 50th anniversary of Stonewall in New York City. So I'm going to do a quick article that I found that really kind of breaks it down what Stonewall was and why it's so significant and why each one of these, because that's why Pride is in June is because of the Stonewall riots. But I think a lot of times, I think a lot of people know about Stonewall, but they might not know the specifics. So This is an article by Untapped Cities, and it was written by Mason Rowley. This article is a thing about, like, historical monuments and places and cities. So this is kind of, like, highlighting why this part of New York is so important. So it says, although the LGBTQ plus pride boasts one of New York City's biggest parades, some may be unaware of the historic New York City event that inspired pride celebrations around the world. The Stonewall Riots, a defining moment in both American and LGBTQ plus history, occurred in June of 1969 at the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in Manhattan. It sparked a legacy of Pride-themed events throughout the month of June in New York City and beyond. The bar and surrounding parks have since been deemed a national monument, but the rest of the surrounding area of the West Village shares the Stonewall's rich history, one which helped shape the culture of New York City well before the riots. 
This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, and as the last weekend of Pride Month approaches, we take a look at the events of 1969. So, in the 1960s, expressions of LGBTQ plus individuality were under attack by many lawmakers within New York City. At the time, any solicitation of homosexual relations was illegal within the city, and police officers were allowed to arrest any individual who wore as little as three articles of clothing that were deemed indecent. Furthermore, the gay community was not allowed to assemble in a large group due to laws which forbade dancing and queer expression in public. These restrictions led to the development of many safe places in the city, including the Stonewall Inn, where these laws were circumvented. In 1966, the Genovese crime family, infamous for their status as one of the five big families in the New York Mafia, purchased the Stonewall Inn and converted it into a bottle bar, which allowed the establishment to operate without a liquor license because patrons were expected to bring their own alcohol. With the help of some alleged bribes in the New York City Police Department, the Genovese family was able to bypass many of the laws designed to oppress the LGBT expression. Although the Stonewall Inn served as a safe place for the queer community, the Genovese family was not always allies to the community. Upon entry, patrons were expected to write their names and entrance books. Many of the wealthier attendees were later blackmailed by the family. They were blackmailed for money if they wished to keep their sexuality slash gender identity a secret. For most of the bar's customers, however, the Stonewall Inn was a liberated space which allowed freedom of expression. Even within the 1960s queer community, drag queens and drag performers were often heavily stigmatized and as a result were not welcome in many of the queer spaces. As Stonewall, drag queens were welcome and dancing was encouraged. Many small queer spaces of refuge did not allow dancing or drag performances because of their hope to remain ambiguous. However, Stonewall's relationship with the mafia allowed them more freedom of expression. For gay runaways and starving artists, Stonewall became a haven in the 1960s New York. Which I was not aware of the Mafia connection. I wasn't Um, either. So it's really interesting. So even in paradise, however, the safety of many patrons was still at risk. Raids by the New York City police were commonplace. Though the connection of the Mafia family allowed most patrons to be tipped off about the raids before they occurred. However, on June 28, 1969, New York police raided the Stonewall Inn without any tip-off. With warrants in hand, police officers stormed the bar and hoped to arrest many of the 200 individuals at Stonewall that evening. During raids, patrons became tired of the constant police brutality against them and at 1 a.m. started to fight back. The Stonewall riots began when a lesbian woman was escorted out of the bar and used a billy club to assault the police officer who failed to loosen her handcuffs. The police officer assaulted the woman and threw her into the police wagon. This served as the last straw for the gay community, and soon after, the 200 people present began to throw pennies, beer bottles, and eventually bricks at the police vehicles at Stonewall Inn. By 4 a.m., Christopher Street was littered with glass and debris, and the streets began to clear. 13 people were arrested by the police, and Four police officers were hospitalized that first evening of protesting. On the second night, the riots grew and more LGBTQ plus activists throughout the Greenwich Village assembled to fight against police brutality. By the third and final evening, over 1,000 protesters had assembled and five more people were arrested. 
These three days of riots sent out a signal to the entirety of law enforcement that no longer was the New York gay community going to be abused by law enforcement. The Stonewall riots have been hailed as a galvanizing moment for the history of gay rights movement, which ignited a sense of action within the gay community. Preceding the riots, many activist groups began, such as the Gay Liberation Front, Human Rights Campaign, Parent and Friends of Lesbian and Gays, that's PFLAG, and Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, GLAD. In June 2015, the Stonewall Inn was declared a New York City landmark by the New York Landmark Preservation Commission for its significance in advancing civil rights and the building's history as a reminder of the struggle for equality. This recognition was the first instance of an LGBTQ plus historic site being listed on the state and national registers of historic places. Being the first of its kind, Stonewall signified a movement towards the recognition of an inclusive history, a move that was instrumental in gaining mainstream attention for the importance of preserving LGBTQ plus history. The inclusion of Stonewall as a national monument has opened discussion about inclusivity of American histories since many public schools don't include LGBTQ plus history in their curriculum. And that's actually in the news too, because some, I think it's New York and a few states are trying to include this and people are protesting it saying that's not history, which is BS. My favorite argument against them doing that is if you're not going to teach the Bible, you shouldn't teach LGBT history. Yeah. That angers me, which literally makes no sense, but okay. Yeah. The landmarking of Stonewall caught the attention of President Barack Obama, and in 2016, he declared the Stonewall Inn a national monument. Stonewall will be our first national monument to tell the story of the struggle for LGBTQ plus rights, said President Obama at the Stonewall Inn's induction as a national monument. I believe our national parks should reflect a full story of our country, the richness and diversity, and uniquely American spirit that has always defined us. So... That was a really big deal for especially a president to recognize that no other monument in our country symbolizes their struggle. And it's a big struggle that people shouldn't sweep under the rug. So today the Stonewall Inn operates as both a gay bar and a national historic landmark for the gay rights movement. It continues to inspire new generations. And this year we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And it says to learn more about Stonewall, make sure to check out Untapped City's guide, walkthrough of the Stonewall 50 at the New York Historical Society, and the exhibition about Stonewall in a hidden gallery atop the Manhattan Municipal Building. So, Cool. I know people probably don't know what Stonewall is. I mean, now you do. But you know it's important. But I thought it'd be kind of cool to talk about the days of writing and it being a historical monument now, because it's a really big deal. And I did see that for World Pride Day, people are flocking to New York right now. To It's going to be a huge celebration. That is awesome. And I'll be going to Pride on Saturday with my sister. So, woo! Oh, yay. Yeah, Pride here isn't until October, so I'm really pumped. But maybe I'll be in a different state by then and can go yeah. to Yeah, I got my shirt and I got a little ally pin. It's behind me. It's really oh, that's cute. Love it. <laughs> I Love it. I'm really excited because you know Little Rocks is really good, but San Antonio should be lit. So yes, oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. I just I love everybody, you know. So I love being involved in things that show that I care because you know history yes. history should be inclusive to everybody. So yeah, because I mean, being gay or lesbian or trans or anything is not a new concept Mm -mm. it was just swept under the rug a lot so which is bullshit so it's true 
So, yeah. So, I have a short listener story from my friend Casey. And Hi, I was Casey. going to... Casey's the best. I've known Casey since high school. God, no. No, wait. I've known Casey since I was like seven. Oh, my gosh. I splashed her dad when I was baptized at our church. <laughs> Because he was sitting in the choir section right outside of the baptismal pool. He was our bus driver. So I don't know. I've known Casey forever. We were in band together. She's one of the best people ever. I love her. But anyway, so hi, Casey. And she gave us a short little story on our Facebook page. And I'm going to add just a couple short of my own family to go with it. So Casey said, my grandma was born in 1925. Because my family are farmers, we have a big family. There are four older siblings and four younger siblings. My grandma is the second to youngest in the younger set. So she's wanting to hang out with her older brothers who are sneaking off to the woods. They keep telling her to fuck off and go back home. (laughs) She doesn't listen. Her oldest brother turns around and shoots her with a BB gun and it hits her above her eye and she still has a scar from it. Oh my God, that happened to my mom. She got hit (gasps) with a, it went through a screen window and got her right above the eye. Yikes. So yeah, so that happened to Casey's sweet grandma. And I wanted to share because it made me think of this. So my dad told me the story that when he was younger, he has this cousin, Brian, and they were playing with a stick and throwing it back and forth to each other like javelins. Well, he took off and hauled it as hard as he could and threw it at his friend at his cousin. And it hit Brian in the face right above his eye and stuck. Oh, oh no. So he, Yes. So when they went inside, he, my dad got a spanking from his mom, Brian's mom and his grandma for doing this. And then, yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's something that's always been passed down, but I had thought of this other thing. Well, I say, I thought of it. Terry reminded me, I should have brought this up before when I talked in our first episode about drolleries and how it was funny to medieval people for someone to be like sawing the branch out from under themselves. Yeah. Well, my father-in-law one time was up in a tree cutting branches with a chainsaw, and he cut the branch that he was sitting on out from under himself. Oh, no. And fell a very far away and broke his leg. Oh. But yes, so those are my family stories. I have so many family stories, but I'll just leave it at those for now. But yeah. Well, I think it's really like, it's crazy because people like us in our age group, we've grown up with stories when, you know, our parents and grandparents would be able to run across town and play all these games and do all these things. And it's not something that kids today can experience because it's not safe enough for kids to go outside and play all these games. So it yes. really is historical because it's like a different time, a different climate, a different culture. Because my mom told me stories all the time about being outside and they'd play like army and They'd be like digging in dirt, but they'd be blocks away, but nobody worried about them. So yes, like, oh my God, I would need more than one hand to count the number of times I took a baseball bat to the stomach or head because we were goofing (laughs) off in someone's yard playing baseball or hitting a pinata or something and just like got knocked out. And it's just, you cry a little bit, you get back up and you're fine. Probably explains why I am the way I am. It's also like the helicopter, like the parenting change, like people yeah. don't let you get hurt anymore because everything's yes. kind of, it's just different time. It's yeah, like- it's, it's really funny to see some of my family parent their kids now that it's, it's people I grew up with that now like one of their kids will fall off something and they're like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm like, you're all right. Get up. You're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Walk it off. You're fine. Walk you off. Yeah. <laughs> like 
like for our listeners, one time Keena and I were at a rugby match and there was this cute little boy playing on the bleachers and he slipped and fell. And Keena was like, oh, no, are you OK? And I was like, you're all right, dude. Keep going. He's <laughs> like, wow, you really don't know how to talk to kids. Well, he face planted metal. So I was like, wow, OK. <laughs> I'm like, you're good. It's fine. Are you concussed? <laughs> yeah. If you can still hold up a couple fingers and say hi, <laughs> you're good. Oh, man. So for our next listener story. So our last episode, well, I guess this comes out. Okay. So episode 10, this comes out out after 11. Okay. So episode 10, we talked about serial killers. And my mom said that my aunt walked in, my Aunt Tammy, and was like, did you tell Keena about that story? Does she remember the time we knew that serial killer? My mom's like, oh, yeah, I'll tell her. And I completely just blacked out that this what? happened. So this is a story about how my mom and, you know, my aunts and uncles hung out with a serial killer. Like, oh, God, this is creepy. And I did research on this guy, and it's just terrifying. I don't know how my mom survived this, honestly. So my grandpa, he he's just like Zeke. He could do anything. He could build things. He could just, he was just amazing. So he worked at this TV repair shop in Mountain Home, Arkansas, which is where I'm from. Holla. Okay. So my grandpa also had four kids, so he would kind of, like, take one or two of them to work, and then they'd hang out at the TV shop, and then he would take them to lunch and stuff. So, like, on Saturdays, that would be the thing that they did. But he worked with this guy named Mark Allen Smith, and he moved to Mountain Home after getting out of the Army. So he worked at the repair shop with him. Sounds normal, right? So my mom says she remembers him. She was probably, like, 10 or 11. So she said, like, she remembers him, but, you know, it was a long time ago, so she doesn't remember a lot. My mom said that he kind of, like, he creeped her out. She said that she didn't know what it was, but he just gave her the heebie-jeebies. So she stayed away from him. She says she remembers that he would be looking at my Aunt Janet sometimes. So my aunt would have been a teenager at this time. So, and, you know, my whole family, they're all, like, pretty and stuff. So he's probably, like, ugh, creepy. But my grandpa, my people would actually leave the kids at the TV repair shop when he'd go on, like, service calls. So they wouldn't be there very long, but they'd be alone with this guy. So keep that in mind. Okay. Yikes. She says she remembers that, like, December or January, the FBI showed up at their house and wanted to talk to my people. And she said that she remembers them because they were wearing, like, you know, suits and ties and they looked so, like, scary and official and stuff. And she didn't realize what was going on. And this is also Mountain Home, Arkansas in the 60s. So they stood out, I'm sure. But she said my grandpa never told her what they talked about. And then it turns out that... Obi Faye Ash was a 32-year-old woman from Cotter, Arkansas, and she was brutally murdered in Mountain Home around December 3rd. So my mom, this is what my mom heard. She said that she had stopped at the repair shop, and he was the only one there, that Mark Allen Smith. And she said she wanted to get her car radio checked before she went to school. And so her husband went to work, her kids were at school, she was going to school. And she had a Volkswagen Beetle, and he told her to pull it around the back and that meter meet him inside the building but she didn't know he locked the front door and as soon as she walked in the back he just he brutally raped her he strangled her and then he stabbed her repeatedly my mom said the story she heard is that a customer knocked on the front door and he covered her with one of those blankets that you use for moving and then helped the customer with her in the back and then locked the door again so then he put her in the back floorboard of the Beetle, drove the car around to the main square of Mountain Home, around Highway 5, if you're from Mountain Home, you know where that's at, and then just left her there, locked the car, left her there. And then her husband reported her missing, and eventually people spotted the car, and they found her 
and I don't want to go too much. I read the news articles and it was brutal, but you could tell she'd been strangled. She'd been stabbed about eight times. She was naked on the floorboard with like her t-shirt strangling her. It was horrible. And they had no leads whatsoever. So the newspapers keep on showing like three weeks later, them being like, we have no evidence. We don't know what's going on. So they set up hotlines. It said in the paper that they did a lie detector test for 10 people. So I called my mom. I was like, did people get a lie detector test? She's like, well, you didn't tell me. I didn't know about that. So apparently shortly after that, this dude takes off, moves, goes back to Illinois where he's from. And he apparently got arrested pretty soon after that. And then he confessed to killing her and another woman. So Mark A. Smith was born on June 27, 1949. He has confessed to 10 murders but authorities believe that he's committed at least 20. Yeah, he was convicted of four murders in 1970 and has been in prison since, serving a 500-year prison sentence that was imposed in 1971. The death penalty wasn't available in Illinois at the time, so that makes him eligible for parole. Ooh, gross, no. God, yeah. It's extremely unlikely that he'll be released. But even if he is ever released, he has a warrant out for his arrest in Arkansas. And Arkansas is put reportedly like, we're waiting for you, motherfucker. Get out. We're coming for you. So Arkansas, he's never been tried for Obi's murder. So every three years, he's up for parole. So the family of all these women, oh, like, no. go to his parole, have to relive this thing, but, like, ensure that he's never going to get out. But like I said, Arkansas didn't get a chance to try him and he'll have another life sentence in Arkansas. And Arkansas is a death penalty state. So so he was convicted in Illinois of brutally raping and killing Jean Irene Bianchi of McHenry. She was 27 at the time, and he was only 20. She was a mother of two young children. He murdered the 17-year-old Jean Ann Ligenfelter, Janice Bullyard. While he was serving in the military in Germany and Vietnam, he may have had eight or more victims. In his book, he wrote a motherfucking book. Of course he did. Titled Legally Insane. What is wrong with him? Anyway, he boasts about various murders. At one of his previous parole hearings, he said everyone's got to die sometime. The hearings were, until recently, held every three years. um, But they've been extended to five years now. So... The state continues to strongly oppose his parole. His prison sentence technically expires in 2220. In 1990, the Chicago Tribune article, he reflected on his deeds and said, I didn't have a sense of self-worth. I didn't like myself, much less anyone else. He claimed once at the age of eight, he tried to strangle a female classmate and then stabbed a six-year-old with a pen knife 20 times when he was nine. He says he doesn't consider himself a monster. And a psychologist who examined him shortly after he entered prison said he's more dangerous than Charles Manson or Richard Speck, who, um, killer of n- numerous nurses. And the doctor says that paroling him in the future would be like giving a blind person a driver's license. So. Yikes. I think that is insane for even the psychologist to be like, he's worse than Charles Manson. He should never yeah. get out. Yeah. Yeah. But everything I read is basically Illinois is like, we regret we can't kill him because he's a monster. But it's just really sad, all those women. And there's more when he was in the army that a lot of people don't even know who they all are. But he's Mm -hmm. just a terrible, terrible human being. But the fact that my mom was alone with him just gives me the creeps. Yeah. 
Oh, I can't even imagine. But, I mean, Mountain Home is such a small Arkansas town anyway. It just, reading the news articles, they were shook. They were just, yeah. Nobody knew what happened, and there were no leads until he got arrested and confessed, which yeah. must have been horrible, especially for a poor family. Ugh. That's, that's, yeah, that's a downer. That's really sad. I know. God, yeah. I can't believe I, I think I blocked that out whenever Tammy asked mom if I remembered that. And I'm like, no, I didn't. But Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, mean, I think I would block it out. Yeah, I wish I knew what my grandpa told him. Like, can you imagine, like, what it'd be like to be my peepaw and know that he put his kids in the same room? Like, he must I, I would feel like horrible. a monster. Yeah. That's probably why he didn't talk about it. He probably felt terrible, but he didn't seem to go after children, but he went after, like, young women. But yeah. people like our age, which is really scary. All right. On that note, shall I move <laughs> on to my story? Sorry, guys. <laughs> <sighs> this one, I mean, this one also has sad things in it I guess but it's not that sad dear god Sorry. <laughs> it's okay so we had an email from Kelsey hi Kelsey hi Kelsey about something in her hometown slash state called the bunny man bridge that just so sounds she, like a big nope already right so she said hey there I saw your post looking for stories because we pimp those out on Facebook a lot. So I immediately thought of this wild story from my hometown in Virginia. Although it's technically an urban legend, it's taken on a life of its own and been well known throughout the area. It's essentially this very creepy bridge in Virginia that teens go to. It's kind of a fun, scary thing to do. The tale is of an escaped insane asylum patient. He was he escaped during transport and would kill and hang bunnies over this bridge. There are also murders mentioned in the tale from what I remember. Kelsey was nice enough to attach us a Wikipedia article about the details of it and the origins, which I will read about in a second. And it also branches off into multiple other stories. So she said it's still pretty cool. And then she says, for her personal account, my friends and I would go at night and took some pictures. I can attach them. They're from high school. So we were super young. We would hear weird noises when we would visit sometimes. However, that could have been nearby animals. It's also very sad because it's a hot spot on Halloween. So a lot of drunk teens go, uh, go, would go, I can't words, and one girl lost her life in a car accident oh, right no. by the bridge. And in photos of the accident, there's a dead end signed. It's something everyone in our area is familiar with. So I'm not sure how popular it is outside of Virginia. Maybe may a good story to share. Thanks and happy podcasting. Best, Kelsey. So thank you, Kelsey, for sending that in. I had never heard of Bunny Man Bridge. I hadn't either. And I'm really fascinated. And I, I love that it's like a thing that the teens do much like what I talked about last extra episode about the garden light in my hometown. Uh -huh. So I was very pumped to read about this. So I looked at the Wikipedia article and it says that the bunny man is an urban legend that originated from two incidences in Fairfax County, Virginia in 1970, but has been spread throughout the Washington DC area as well. Oh. The legend has many variations, but most involve a man wearing a rabbit costume who attacks people with an ax or hatchet. Ah, Holy crap, that would scare the shit out of me. No. <laughs> that would scare me more than just someone attacking me with an axe or hatchet. Like, he's also dressed as a rabbit. I don't like that. Nope. 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 Although I also picture it like the outfit from A Christmas Story that Ralphie's aunt sends him. <laughs> where it's the pink yeah. bunny. But yes, so most of the stories occur around Colchester Overpass, a southern railway overpass spanning Colchester Road near Clifton, Virginia, sometimes referred to as Bunny Man Bridge. 
Versions of the legend vary in the bunny man's name, motives, weapons, victims, description of the bunny costume, or lack thereof, and sometimes even his possible death. In some accounts, victims' bodies are mutilated, and in some variation, the bunny man's ghost or aging specter is said to come out of his place of death each year on Halloween to commemorate his passing. So where did it come from? Fairfax County Public Library historian and archivist Brian A. Conley extensively researched the bunny man legend. Thank you, Brian Conley. He has located two incidences of a man in a rabbit costume threatening people with an axe. So, real thing. The vandalism reports occurred a week apart in 1970 in Burke, Virginia. The first incident was reported the evening of October 19, 1970 by U.S. Academy cadet Robert Bennett and his fiance, who were visiting relatives on Guinea Road in Burke. Around midnight, while returning from a football game, they reportedly parked their car in a field on Guinea Road to, quote-unquote, visit an uncle who lived across the street from where the car was parked. As they sat in the front seat with the motor running, they noticed something moving outside the rear window. Moments later, the front passenger window was smashed, and there was a white-clad figure standing near the broken window. Bennett turned the car around while the man screamed at them about trespassing, including, you're on private property and I have your tag number. As they drove down the road, the couple discovered a hatchet on the car floor. Nope. No! No. 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 That would, no, I would freak the fuck out. When the police requested a description of the man, Bennett insisted he was wearing a white suit with long bunny ears. However, Bennett's fiance contested their assailant did not have bunny ears on his head, but was wearing a white capper, I don't know what that is, caperote of some sort. Let me Google that. I forgot to. Hold music. Do, 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 do. Okay. Caperote. Okay, it is a pointed, what? A pointed hat of conical form that is used in Spain. It is part of the uniform of some brotherhoods, including the Nazarenos and Fariseos, during Easter observances and reenactments in some areas during Holy Week in Spain and San Luis Potosi, Mexico. Not what I was expecting, but okay. He's wearing one of those. Far away yeah. from Virginia. <laughs> yeah, that's, I agree. So, they both remembered seeing his face clearly, but in the darkness, they could not determine his race. The police returned the hatchet to Bennett after execute, or examination, not execution. Bennett <laughs> was required to report the incident upon his return to the Air Force Academy. The second reported sighting occurred on the evening of October 29, 1970, when construction security guard Paul Phillips approached a man standing on the porch of an unfinished home in Kings Park West on Guinea Road. Phillips said the man was wearing a gray, black, and white bunny costume and was about 20 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighed about 175 pounds. The man began chopping at a porch post with a long-handled axe, saying, You are trespassing. If you come any closer, I'll chop off your head. Ah! That's just such a weird combination. Like, I'm dressed as a bunny, but I have an axe. I don't know. I do not compute. Yeah, me neither. So the Fairfax County Police opened investigations into both incidences, but both were eventually closed for lack of evidence. In the weeks following the incident, incidences, more than 50 people contacted the police claiming to have seen the bunny man. Several newspapers, including the Washington Post, reported that the bunny man had eaten a man's runaway cat. Aw, poor kitty. Poor cat. That's, that's an odd thing to prove, but okay. The Post articles that mentioned this incident were man in bunny costume sought in Fairfax on October 22nd, 1970. The rabbit reappears October 31st of 1970. Bunny man seen November 4th, 1970. Bunny reports are multiplying November 6th, 1970. 
1973, Patricia Johnson, a student at the University of Maryland College Park, submitted a research paper that chronicled precisely 54 variations on the two incidences. Oh, wow. So, like a terrible game of telephone, it got out of control. Here's the, like, basic legend breakdown. The legend has circulated for years in several forms. 54 variations to be exact, according to Patricia Johnson. So a version naming a suspect in specific location was posted to a website in the late 1990s by a Timothy C. Forbes. This version states that in 1904, an asylum near Clifton, Virginia, was shut down due to a petition by the growing population of residents in Fairfax County. During the transfer of inmates to a new facility, one of the 15 transports crashed. Most, including the driver, were killed, but 10 inmates escaped. A search party found all but one of them. During this time, locals allegedly began to find hundreds of cleanly skinned, half-eaten carcasses of rabbits hanging from trees in the nearby forest. Feels like a waste of rabbit for me, personally. Very Blair Witchy, too. Yes. Another search of the area was ordered, and the police located the remains of Marcus Walster, left in a similar fashion to the rabbit carcasses, hanging in a nearby Ah! tree. Yikes, yikes, yikes. And under a bridge overpass, also known as the Bunnyman Bridge, along the railroad tracks at Colchester Road. Officials named the last missing inmate, Douglas J. Griffin, as their suspect and called him the Bunny Man. In this version, officials finally managed to locate Griffin, but during their attempt to apprehend him at the overpass, he nearly escaped before being hit by an oncoming train where the original transport crashed. Supposedly, after the train passed, the police heard laughter. It was eventually revealed that Griffin had been institutionalized for killing his family on Easter Sunday. Yikes. Which goes back to my our first episode where I talked about the Easter Sunday massacre. Yeah. So apparently killing your family on Easter is very popular. For years after the bunny man's death, in the time approaching Halloween, carcasses are said to have been found hanging from the overpass and from trees in the surrounding area. A figure was reportedly seen by pedestrians making their way through the one-lane bridge tunnel. According to Conley, this version is dem- demonstrably false. Among other inconsistencies, Conley notes that there has never been an asylum for the insane in Fairfax County, and that Lorton Prison didn't come into existence until 1910, and even then, it was an arm of the District of Columbia Correction System, not Virginia's. Moreover, court records show neither a Griffin or a Walster. Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, on his blog, or Lauren Coleman, on his blog Cryptomundo, and in his book Weird Virginia, in a section on the Bunny Man, wrote about a direct association between the legend and that of the Goat Man of nearby Maryland. Which is exactly what I thought of when I read Bunny Man was the Goat Man. And there's also a Goat Man bridge in uh, Denton, Texas. Yeah, I have heard of that one. Yes, I, that's where I got my uh, library master's is Denton, Texas, but I've never been there. But <laughs> Ghost Adventures and uh, BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural did episodes on Goat Man Bridge. And they were vastly different, surprisingly. So, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, here's just a little bit about the actual bridge. Col- Colchester Overpass was built about 1906 near the site of Sangster Station, a Civil War-era railroad station on what was once the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Because of its association with the Levin, oh, oh my God, with the legend, the Overpass <laughs> is a popular destination for paranormal enthusiasts and ghost hunters and curiosity seekers. Interest increases around Halloween, and starting in 2003, local authorities began controlling access to the area during that time. During Halloween 2011, over 200 people, some from as far away as Pennsylvania, Maryland state line, were turned away during a 14-hour traffic checkpoint into the area. Damn. 
Visitors from outside the area may be aware that Colchester Overpass is an active intersection of trains and traffic. The railroad tracks overhead are used by trains of Norfolk Southern Railway, Virginia Railway Express, and Amtrak. Virginia Railway Express and Amtrak together account for 90 trains using the overpass each week. In the vicinity of this overpass, Colchester Road is narrow and winding, limited visibility, and then in Fairfax, it's illegal to trespass on posted railroad tracks and to loiter in a public roadway. So yeah, apparently there are instances of pop culture of the Bunny Man, the final song on Music to Piss You Off, a 2010 compilation album. By noise and rhythmic, oh my god, rhythmic noise and industrial artist CAT, which stands for Chaos and Terror, is called Bunny Man, and it was inspired by that. There's the 2011 slasher film Bunny Man, which is an exploitative type of version of the story. In 2017, Bad Wolf Brewing Company of Manassas, Virginia, released their Hoppy Red Lager. Oh my god, Hoppy, I hate you known as the bunny man in a can that depicted the tunnel, a figure in a bunny suit and a child holding a red balloon. What? Yes. In 2017, Amazon original series lore based on the podcast of the same name uses the bunny man legend to in- introduce the second episode of season one, the Chris Gethard or yeah, Gethard show episode. Let's get scared has Chris dressed as the bunny man for the full episode and all kinds of other things. So that is the bunny man. Thanks to Kelsey, I've learned so much. I had never heard of it, and I'm fascinated. Yeah, thank you, Kelsey. That was so cool. Yes. Fascinated. Oh, yes. Man, that's so cool. All right, so for our last one, so we've mentioned before that Ashley and I met working at the same library, and depending on who you talk to, this library is haunted as shit, okay? So haunted. So I'm going to do a quick history of the library, because... You know, I like history. And then I'll tell you a few uh, stories about the library. And then we have EVPs. What? What? Okay, so this library is in North Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1942, they passed a tax to support local libraries. And it was placed on the 1945 ballot and passed the, which, you know, that's right after like World War II-ish for them to, you know. The library, so that's kind of cool. So Myrtle, I like the name Myrtle. Myrtle Deason was hired to operate the library and worked for a full year with the Board of Trustees before the library opened in 1947. The original library was housed in a turn-of-a-century building on 211 Maple Street. It was two stories with books on the first level and living quarters on the second. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I know, right? A library for African-American communities was established near the Missouri Pacific Railroad grounds at 808 East 13th Street. In 1959, a group of determined citizens and a the library director, Elsie Weisenberger, that's a fun name too, <laughs> sparked a drive for civic improvement, and that included a new library. So on December 30th, 1962, which all these stories were in the 60s and 70s, but okay. I just distracted myself. (laughs) Okay. On December 30th, 1962, the Maple Street Library and the 13th Street Library moved into a new facility and formally dedicated as the William F. Lehman Public Library of North Little Rock. And it's named after Mayor William F. Casey Lehman, who held office from 1958 to 1972 and then again from 1979 to 1980. And his big ass portrait is right by the elevators. 
Helen Elrod was the first director, which lots of women here. I did not know that. Real talk. Wilma Ankrum followed as director, another woman. And then in 1970, the library expanded under the new direction of Patricia O'Bannon, another woman. What? Nancy Pack served as director from 1981 to 1987, another woman. And then Jeff motherfucking Baskin takes over. Oh, yeah. In 1987. He is the director that was working there when we we started. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize that he was director there longer than I've been alive. Yeah, 1987. I was three. I was born (laughs) in 88. I'm sorry. (laughs) He was director until 2014, which we'll get into in a bit. This is from the library website too, so should have added that. In February 2002, work began to expand and renovate the library. When the expansion was formally dedicated on April 22nd, 2003, it was nearly doubled in size from about 25,000 square feet to almost 50,000 square feet. This expansion added a second floor, included a new space for books and public programs, and created two large public reading rooms. In May 2006, the library opened its first branch on Main Street in downtown North Little Rock. The Argenta branch moved into what was once City Hall and a downtown fire station. It was a really cool building. It was also very fucking haunted. Yes. <laughs> I worked there once and I was like, never again. It was very creepy. Yeah, oh. very creepy. In spring of 2006, Lehman Plaza reopened after ex- extensive landscaping and renovations. The plaza received new rockwork, sidewalks, and dramatic lighting. A variety of new trees and shrubs were planted and flowering annuals were added. The gazebo designed and built in the 19th. 19- 1960s by famed architect E. Faye Jones is still a centerpiece of the plaza. I don't think they like promote that enough that like a famous they, architect. They don't. When I was working there, they did an exhibit about E. Faye Jones in the exhibit hall and they like had a placard in there that was like, if you would like to see this, it's out in our plaza. Yeah, I think that's such a cool thing that I don't think a lot of people know. And uh, it overlooked a restored pond and fountains. In 2011, which is when I started working there, as the United States Postal Service announced the closure of a 3,700 post offices nationwide due to massive deficits, Baskin saw an opportunity. The old Argenta post office in downtown North Little Rock officially closed in 2012, leaving this historic building vacant and without a purpose. According to the National Trust of Historic Preservation, local post office buildings have traditionally played an essential role in the lives of millions of Americans. Many are architecturally distinctive, prominently located, and cherished as civic icons in communities cross country. So William F. Lehman Public Library System believes in the historic Argenta district, and Baskin jumped on that shit and bought it, uh, which is also haunted as shit. Which- yes. <laughs> Fun fact, the person that we know as the former White House Easter Bunny that we talked about in our first episode, we met her working at Lehman, and then her father, when he was still alive, was the postmaster of that post office. Yes, it's so cool. There's so many connections. And that post office actually had a suicide in it, Mm -hmm. where the guy killed himself is now the break room, so that's fun. (laughs) They had to cover up the bullet hole with renovations and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, when they're doing demo, they let a lot of us go in there with hard hats and see a lot of the original stuff. And it was really cool. Around 2000, like before 2011, during the renovations, that's when they created the teen center and our computer lab and all that. So that's when I came in is right when the teen center opened for the first time. And so in the fall of 2014, 
director Jeff Baskin died suddenly, like super suddenly. And the library board of directors became a, or began a national search for the new director. So they hired like a headhunter and they brought in people from all over the country to be our new director. And it was pretty cool. And they let a lot of us like sit in on the interviews to like let us have a say in who they pick. And they brought in Crystal Gates, who was a librarian in Louisiana. And she's young, but she's really kind of innovative. And she brought a lot of really cool, fresh ideas, which, okay, so Layman is super ass haunted and we all knew it and we'd constantly be like hey jeff can we have a ghost hunt and he'd be like no it's not haunted but like in his head he thought that if we were haunted that like people wouldn't come anymore in my head i'm like if you call this place haunted people are gonna come for like ghost tours and stuff but after he passed away and we got the new director i asked her if we could do a ghost hunt and she said yes so me and ashley got to go to the first ghost hunt at layman it was so fun it was really cool and creepy. And they actually did a second ghost hunt at the Argenta branch. And they said that the Argenta investigation had more activity. So, yeah, they're really pumped about that. So, one of my favorite stories is that a woman named Janet that lives, or lives, she doesn't live there, <laughs> works in the children's department, talked about how she was shelving. And, like, the children's department is one of the older parts of the building. Like, so the main part of the adult and then the children's were, like, the original. And then they expanded. So then, like, Teen Center is, like, above what used to be administration and all that. Anyway, so underneath what the Teen Center is is a bunch of books. And she says she saw a woman in, like, full antebellum dress, like, in the books, looking at books and stuff. And she went over there being, like, what the hell's going on? And then she disappeared. There is also, Ashley can vouch for this like upstairs near the new computer lab books would just fly off the shelves you'd like pick them up turn around they'd be back on the floor the teen center our bathroom had like uh motion sensor lights and it'd be constantly like clicking on and off and then the door would slam sometimes it would slam so hard it would break our doorstop (laughs) and it'd be like come on dude and then behind me i had a kind of a cubicle desk and then the storage closet was right behind my desk and I could hear things moving around in the storage closet all the time and the light would be turning on and off but anytime like a kid would get upset or something I'd be like you're scaring the kids and it would stop for the day my favorite which Stacy it was another person that you know wrote in about this she was my uh, partner in crime in the teen center for a while so we had a person come in for the historic Arkansas preservation and she was doing a haunted arkansas cemetery like presentation and she was talking about all that and when she left like almost minutes after she left our tv turned on and i was like okay who stole the remote and i'm like grilling the kids like who took the remote off my desk and they're like you know it's right there so i was like touche so then i immediately <laughs> was like okay who has one of those universal clicker things or whatever so i'm thinking somebody's screwing with me and as soon as i said that the tv turned off and the other side turned on and i was like well, that's weird. And then so I go over there and I'm like, what's happening? And then the other TV turned on. And I was like, I'm standing right here. Nobody could have done it. Everybody's in there is staring at it with me and they're getting freaked out. I would have seen their hands if somebody was doing it. But the best part is that we were talking about famous cemeteries. The library is built on the Oddfellows Cemetery. And that they moved it because the interstate was coming through. So the library, the high school, the police department, it's all built on this original Oddfellows Cemetery. So my opinion, it's all poltergeisty. Like, they didn't move the bodies. They only moved the stones. Real talk. 
that's just my wild accusation. I just thought that, like, we're talking about cemeteries, pissed off people being like, this is where I was buried, and you fucked with me. And they're, you know, that stuff. And there's also, like, lights turning on and off. There was a file cabinet that would not stay closed no matter what you did. Trash cans turning over. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. I used to contact, they're called the Arkansas Ghost Catchers. And... Rhonda Burton is one of the most delightful human beings I've ever met. She's so sweet. And she would come and do a presentation for the teens and talk about, you know, haunted Arkansas and like the military museum and stuff and show EVPs and stuff. So when we got permission to do a ghost hunt, she was who I called. And she's also very spiritual. Like she's very kind and she's not like baggins that's like baiting, you know, spiritual. Yeah, she does not believe in, um, like, provocation or anything like that. Yeah, so she'll be like, you're safe. If you just want to talk to me, that's okay. If you don't, that's fine. It's very sweet, and it's very peaceful, and it's just very wonderful. So I had her come, and we came, I think it was, like, 8 o'clock at night when it was dark, you know. And her and her team set up some EVPs, which are the electric voice phenomenon. They had the little box. What are they called? The voice box thing? The spirit box? Yeah, spirit box. It's like white noise, but you can hear real time. Um, they had dow- dowsing rods. Mm-hmm. Which at one point, our one of our managers was holding it, and the thing was going off like crazy, and they were asking questions about the old director, and it was just going nuts, no matter who was touching it. Because we were all like, come on, everybody's moving it. And then we all did it, and it was moving. Like, yes, yeah. questions. Insane. So I have some of the EVPs, so I'm going to play them for you. Very exciting. Okay, so one of my favorites. So we're in the children's department. We're in the back, and we're talking about how, like, you know, if you're a kid, you might want to go to the library. It might be your safe place or something. So they caught this voice. If you listen very carefully, it says, she's asking, like, what's your name? And it says, Emmy. I really would like to know your name. Can you tell me your name, please? hear it at the end yeah says yeah like the sweetest like tiniest little girl voice i'll do it one more time just in case i really would like to know your name can you tell me your name right after she says please before okay okay and then one of the ones i thought sounded the most like a person is this one and it sounds like a very very deep man saying yes ma'am and she had asked right before it, is there anybody that wants to say something? And you hear, yes, ma'am. Okay, and then we're talking about, she's asking who the director was, because he died very suddenly, he had pancreatic cancer. So it was just very sudden and tragic and sad. And she was asking what his name was. So she says Jeff Baskin. And then if you listen really carefully, you can hear somebody say Jeff. Jeff Baskin. Jeff. Oh, I thought I thought that was the one where he says, go ahead. I think a lot of people, I think it could go either way. These are really hard yeah. to interpret. They are. <laughs> yeah. This one either says Robin or Robert. This is Rhonda. I'm recording. Robert. This one, they think she says, get out. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, I remember that one. We were like, okay, it's time to go. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, because we thought she said hello at the beginning. Yeah. Re listen to it. Yeah, I think this is the hello one. Never mind. Hello. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is the good one. Okay. 
Yeah, that's actually me saying, like, I'm in the teen center, and they're like, since this is your area, you talk. And I was like, here's your chance. Talk to me in here. You know, hello. Here's your chance. And, uh, <laughs> that's another good one. Oh, here's a good one. How many spirits visit this library? Yeah, we remember that one. <laughs> But yeah, there's a lot of really cool EVPs we got. Being there was a little like, whoa, things are talking to us. Yeah, they were really fun. I really enjoyed our time at the ghost hunt. But if you're interested, so they are the Arkansas Ghost Catchers. And every year they do the Arkansas Paranormal Expo. And you can go to www.arkansasparanormalexpo.com for more information. But it's going to be October 5th and 6th this year. It's at the MacArthur Museum of Arkansas Military History, which, humble brag, if you go, I have an exhibit right now. I worked on the pinups and paperback exhibit there, and I did two panels. So you'll see my name. so cool. Yeah, really exciting. I did the one with the Playboy. And then I did um, one about the lawsuit about pinups being just immoral. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah. And the Paranormal Expo is so freaking fun. My husband and I go every year. We didn't go last year because it was literally on our wedding day. But I for real thought about going in my wedding dress. But like they have an alley where psychics, you can pay to have psychic readings. They have like a Bigfoot expert. And ghost hunters that do panels and UFO experts that talk. And then I believe they're doing it this year. They didn't last year, but there's another couple psychics that will do group readings. And it's so much fun. And then there's vendors that sell, you know, jewelry and that kind of thing. But it's it's super fun. And it also uh, bears mentioning that the Arkansas Ghost Catchers is an all-women's ghost hunting group. Hell yeah. And one of them wrote the book on Haunted Little Rock. So that's yep. really exciting too. Guess who one of the booths that's going to be there this year is? It's going to be us! Yay! Yep, we're going to have a booth at Paranormal Expo this year at MacArthur. And I'm so excited because I love Paranormal Expo. This is like my Woodstock. Yes, it's so excited. So yeah, um, yeah, you guys should definitely look them up. They're really cool. If you're in Arkansas, you should definitely come to some of their, you know, places where they speak. They're so cool. And it's Linda Howell. She wrote the book and she does the haunted yes. tours of Little Rock. So she's super cool. But yeah, we're really excited. And we're also going to go on to Cheers from the Grave. And we'll probably talk about the Argenta ghost story and have the EVPs from that. But yeah, definitely go check them out too. Yep, yep. All kinds of cool, spooky goodness. I'm so excited. Yeah, and so definitely send us your stories if you got a family history, like Story like my mom knowing a serial killer or some urban legend like the bunny man. Just let us know and uh, email us, send it to us on Facebook. We will uh, gladly read it next month. Yes. So our email address is historicalafpod at gmail.com. And then all of our social media, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter, you can find us at historicalafpod. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next month, guys. Bye. Happy extra month. Bye. Bye. <laughs>